This episode is brought to you by Crater Lake Taxi. Competent drivers, clean vehicles, on time, anytime. Crater Lake Taxi, 541-333-3333. Oh, Mark Ernstberg, good to hear you. You're totally right. There probably is a discrepancy between tone and beat. But hey, I'm just giving you a call to set up a time to talk. Set up a time to talk. Set up a time to talk. Set up a time. Hee hee. I just wanted to clarify. That was me, Jeff Stanley. So I'll talk to you later. I am Citizen 44. Please listen carefully. Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. It is Sunday. Uh, I worked last night and I would venture to say... It was the slowest Saturday I've ever had being behind the wheel of a taxi. I mean, like, deathly slow, like there was a plague in Ashland slow. The iPub had like 10 people in it at 2 o'clock in the morning, when typically speaking, the iPub has about, you know, 80 people in it at 2 o'clock in the morning, We're getting ready to walk down the street or take a cab over to Omar's across town and drink for another 30 minutes. It was a ghost town. On uh, Pioneer is the the after hours taco window, which is open to like 3 a.m. There was nobody there. The cops didn't even come out. And they usually park in the Wells Fargo parking lot with their lights on, shined, shown, shoned it on, shined it on the taco window and kind of keeping a handle on the whole vinyl crowd and iPub crowd. But nothing like, really, honestly, it was like everybody left, like Andromeda strain. So I came home at like 3 a.m. I didn't have to do the 5 a.m. thing, and that was kind of nice. And uh, I worked on this uh, Tipo, Tipo piece, and I haven't been asleep yet. I, I got off at 3 a.m., and it's now 2.33 p.m., and I've been going the whole time on this Tipo piece, and I've been really engrossed in it and enjoying the editing process and the creativity that I've taken license to do with his incredible poetry. I hope it does it justice. I hope Tipo appreciates my little creative twist on, on his words with just some backing tracks, as it were. But, uh, you know, you'll decide for yourself. I mean, his poetry stands alone, doesn't require anything. But, you know, I just like getting my sound on because I'm in the sound thing now. I like messing with sound. I feel like John Travolta in, what was that movie? A Blowout. He was the sound dude. He had those headphones on. He'd go get sounds from outside where he inadvertently records a car going into the water, some lake or something, and some senator or somebody dies And his sound capture holds the key, the key piece of evidence that is going to implicate somebody for some shit about that. And uh, it was good. I enjoyed it. And maybe I'm going to actually have to revisit that. 
what else is happening? Uh, Val and Sam and Zoe are, uh, along with Val's two sisters here, uh, Barb and Laura and families, are all in Southern California for a memorial service for Val's mom who passed away. Uh, I think like, God, it seems like forever ago now and also yesterday, but like, I don't know, six months ago. So the family has gathered uh, in Southern California and and uh, the kids are seeing their cousins and their aunties and uncles and it's cool. And I'm sure Zoe is, is uh, although she was probably hesitant and because she's a little social, social phobic, sociophobic, you know, the people thing, a little uncomfortable, I, under, I understand. But anyway, uh, I think they're having a good time doing some swimming. Uh, they went to the Universal Studios tour. Sam said that was super cool. There was a bunch of stuff I remember from when I was a kid, like the Flash Flood and the rubbery, stupid Jaws uh, exhibit and uh, the Psycho House, which was probably, that's like the thing. That's like the landmark uh, of my memories associated uh, with Universal Studios tours, probably the Psycho House and the Flash Floods. And there was other shit. Oh, yeah, there was the Wild West, like, stuntman show, which they don't do anymore. Uh, and that was fun. And uh, and I guess Val and Zoe uh, really did it up in the uh, Harry Potter world thing, part of the park, because they're both into that, especially Zoe Hardcore. And, and Sam said, you know, he went on rides, and, and, and they had some fun. So that's cool that they're getting, like, a mini vacation mixed with this, you know, memorial memory kind of having fun and grandma's in mind. It's good. That's, that's all good. Life goes on without us, man. So, and it's never really without us anyway, because once we were here, we're always here. You can't not be here unless you erase our memories. And that's not happening yet. So that's what's happening with Val. And so sad, while they were gone, BB, which is Sam's birth mother, Tressa's dog, a Blue Point Terrier something something, very sweet very sweet animal, but shed like fucking crazy, which drove me nuts. Like really coarse, hard hair everywhere. So sad for that dog because the dog was sweet, but I, I, I couldn't even, I could barely be in the same room for any length of time and used to get on Sam when he came over the apartment because he'd have this hair all over his shorts and then it would be in here. And it's like one of my things, you know, my little pet peevy thingamabobber. Anyway, while they were away and under the care of Val's niece, uh, BB got out and was struck by a truck and killed. So it's all very, you know, the whole death thing is in the air with Val's mom. And, and now they're there and, you know, they're, uh, they're grieving uh, two losses. And, uh, and BB, I believe, was taken uh, by Val's niece upon Val's request uh, to be cremated. And uh, I don't think Tressa's doing all that great with that. Tressa left the dog behind and has, has been on her own path. And so she won't be able to say goodbye to her dog in that way. But uh, again, it's, it's life, man. We come, we go. All of us, plants, people, animals, the whole thing deteriorates, withers away. Very little except our fucking garbage that we leave here stays behind, which, you know, we shouldn't be doing that either. That's really stupid. As far as Boo goes, a very shocking turn of events. I should have saw this coming. It just makes me just as fucking stupid as anybody else, of course. But uh, I told you in a previous show that I had sent Boo a package 
that included this cool necklace that was made by a friend, a jewelry maker friend, and a cool card that looked like the dog that, you know, they have there at the house, old Ducca, who's, you know, dying, and, uh, and other things. And in there, I told you that I put in this cute little book with a cute tassel bookmark of the Four Agreements. And it was kind of this Freudian thing, and maybe I made a mistake, but maybe I didn't. Because last night, I don't know, I was working on the T-Po show, and I was listening while editing, and, and, and Boo was on the phone, video phone, and she's making me this really sweet uh, wall hanging. And we were talking about the T-Po thing, and we were talking about, what was it? Oh, about, I guess, the military and I mentioned that, you know, there used to be a draft here and how it was kind of a lottery back in the day when they did the draft and that now it's volunteer. And I don't know how it came up. And I don't really, honestly, I don't know what went down other than the fact I said, well, I wouldn't kill no matter what. And maybe she had a problem with that. And I, I'm still not clear. And, uh, but she hung up the phone on me. And come on, man, I'm not 10 or fucking 15 or 18. Tell me what's up. Bring something to my attention so I can understand. So we hung up on each other a couple times and, and chatted a little bit. And it's like, what? what is up? What did I do? What did I say? So evidently I made a face. So I made a face that uh, upset her and she got off the phone. And uh, it was probably a face of just being perturbed uh, at her difference of opinion based on me thinking that murder is bad and her maybe thinking that murder is okay. I don't know. I really, I never got down to it. And then something, how the four agreements came up, and I realized in this moment that when she said, the four agreements, those are yours, and, the, and I don't even think she's read them or knows what they are, that she just completely disregards these reasonable principles on how to live one's life. And the fact that she completely disregards and has like this negative feeling towards them she is a huge turnoff to me it shows me one that her ego is gigantic perhaps bigger than mine if that's humanly possible and and that she's totally unreasonable and has to be right and i thought it was me she's telling me i have to be right but this is not about being right this is just about the integrity of who i am and how i operate in the world and what i'm finding is those things, that, and that, that's a precious little four things that I find so critically important that help us all to um, better operate with ourselves and each other. But she's just like no fucking go on the four agreements. And again, I don't think she's even read them or knows what they are, which says even more. So essentially, I told her, you know what? Uh, you're not as intelligent as I thought you were, clearly, based on you completely not even considering what I'm presenting to you. I'm not forcing anything down your throat, but these are just simple principles to live your life by, which are, in case you didn't know, uh, drum roll, please. Number one, be impeccable with your word. Say what you mean, mean what you say. Number two, don't take anything personally. What other people do has nothing to do with you. Even boo not wanting to do this has nothing to do with me specifically, but it does demonstrate who she is and how she operates and how she thinks. And I just don't line up with that shit that she does not, you know, line up with my thing with these that I'm reading off to you. Okay, number two, 
uh, don't take anything personally. I'm not. I just don't want to be with her anymore because she's fucking pig-headed and she's unreasonable. And I have no time for that. I, I simply don't have any time. I'd much rather, as I did, invest my time into this podcast with Tipo, which is so good. It's so good. He's so He was so giving with himself and of everything that is he, him, in a very uh, uh, complicated and challenging time for him. So easy to dump boo. I'm, and I'm not sorry to say that. I let her know that she is no longer intellectually interesting to me. Has just knocked her out of the game. And that's totally cool, man. I actually, again, I feel great. It's not a problem. I'd rather know the truth and deal with the truth than have shit come up later and have to deal with it. She has shown her colors, as it were. And I actually, more than anything, feel sorry for her ignorance. And maybe not even ignorance, for her just lack of willingness to, again, take a look at something. And I'm just not into it. It's a total turnoff. Sexy gone bad. She's not sexy to me. She's not funny to me. She's not, you know, really anything to me anymore. Because I told her, there's not one friend that I have that cannot look at the four agreements and go, yeah, that would save me from a lot of difficulty. But she she won't look at these things. So, again, it is a point of contention. It may be the only real... I mean, we've gotten over everything else. Well, let's get back to it. Number three is never assume. So, I'm not assuming. She's very clear on what she's communicating to me about her pushback on this four agreements thing. And number four is... Always do the best you can do. So, again, it's cool. I'm not taking it personally, but I don't want to be with somebody who has no interest in even looking at something together. I'm not imposing like Christianity or Judaism or Catholicism or any kind of cult uh, mentality or anything crazy on her. I'm just pointing out something I found that has helped me considerably in my life. And uh, the fact that she is not only uninterested, but holds animosity towards this thing that I presented without even knowing what it is. So we're kind of saying our goodbyes right now because I'm done. I really am. I was off at 2.30. I worked on the show intermittently because I only had a couple calls between like midnight and three or whatever the, I, whenever I stopped driving and I've been, you know, having fun with the show. So yeah, man, oh man, it's Again, I don't feel bad. I'm not angry. I'm not disappointed. I'm not anything. I'm still going to Thailand. I'm having my surgery, seeing my friends. going to have a great time. She said something about, uh, I don't understand her English. And actually, honestly, I think she's full of shit. So it's cool, man. It's totally cool. Family should be home in a couple days. I've been visiting Buddy, the other dog, every day. He's so sad. He misses his friend, BB. They've been together for years now. And uh, he's visibly shaken and upset. And I've, I sit with him, given him fresh water and cleaned his bowl, his food bowl and brushed him a little bit and talked to him. And I'm trying to spend some time with him. You know, Val and the kids gone, BB gone, stranger there, but I think Buddy will be okay. So I cleaned the kitchen up for Val and did some dishes and just give Buddy a little bit of uh, something different. Uh, Let Buddy know I've been there, a different footprint in the house. I actually wanted to put some music on, and maybe I'll, I'll go do that in a little while, is uh, go get some kind of a battery-operated something-something 
and and put it in there for him to to listen to. Maybe that'll help him. I don't know. It seems reasonable that he would like some music or some kind of something because he's probably very lonely. Every time I've been over there, nobody's been there. So I know that Val's niece is working and and I, I get all that. So that's kind of what's going on around here. It's very warm still, but I'm loving it. I can't believe how much I'm loving it. And again, dead last night, man. Fucking unbelievable ghost town. I, I was looking for tumbleweed races down the middle of Main Street. I've never really seen it quite like that in the height of summer. So it's all good. It is what it is, as long as it is, whenever it is. And, and that's, that's what we got to deal with. So, boo out. Bye-bye, boo. Sorry, buddy. Bummer and all. But life goes on without you. So, I have got nobody. My friend Joseph I bumped to in the plaza yesterday while I was sitting around just staring at the few people that were milling about. And he told me that, his, uh, that he was out with his mom. He was visiting his mother and they were out walking with uh, his daughter Jasmine and she fell and hit her face and uh, and died in his arms. Just like that. And interestingly enough, I told Boo this and she had this very callous like, well, Joseph was lucky he was there when it happened so he could, you know, say goodbye to her. And I'm thinking, dude, I would like to see you walking down the street with your fucking sister and she trips and falls and breaks her face and dies in your arms and you could be so cool, calm, and collected about sudden death like that, just to even say so kind of coldly, like, lucky him, he was there. I mean, on some level, sure, she's sort of right, but, you know, not very compassionate or... So, another fucking strike. That's two big strikes. I mean, on the thirds, the whatever stuff and other things. So, but, uh, so there you go. I'm taking my mind off of that and I need to do other things. I need to take care of my podcast business. I need to get some graphic design business rolling, get some extra cash rolling in for my hernia business uh, because uh, the taxi is not throwing down the cash like it used to do. So it's all good. Again, I get taken care of. I'm not worried. I get everything I need. I get more than any human could possibly ask for. And I'm just going to roll with all that. We got Tipo coming up. Fantastic. Here we go. But first, we're in the taxi with my boy Ryan from Unity Forest Products chatting about a psychotropic genius idea that came to fruition. Bam! I took a company that did that and changed it. You know so, what I mean? So, so they were the criminals I, and you made them the heroes. My father was a fucking criminal uh. for the most part, right? But I found a way to use probably one of our best resources on the planet like yeah. seriously it's an amazing resource yeah. for everybody yeah but you don't take from fresh forest lightning strikes fucking burns part of the forest down you bring it you manufacture it down right right make things work we have a small niche i mean i, I got like 16 boys it's not like like a big company at all it's not about size it's about what you No, no no but it, it it could be big though so what you have now that was originally your father's business yes and he was a miller and yeah, absolutely. Okay. But okay. he was all about. But he was tearing everything down and fucking. He's still alive. Yep. What's yeah. he think of what you're doing? Loves it. I work with him for him. Was it your idea to say, "Hey, absolutely. Dad, let's do this instead I of doing this"? I went to school here. Yeah. Okay. The mushrooms though will connect you more than. Well, this I, is. They all say it, it automatic. One time you do mushrooms, one time it opens your heart. So. 
Yeah. Well, um, and I, you know, I've blasted. Yeah. 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 I'm. 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 I'm, I'm pretty blasted. <laughs> yeah. I tried to figure out a way because I, I did not want to graduate and like be like, uh, I don't know what I want to do. Is that how you came to the idea through mushrooms? Yes, I did. Oh, that's yeah. fucking awesome. Walking through Lithia Park, looking at the trees, and like understanding where we're at. Yeah. The no, whole, I'm feeling it. the whole thing. That's built with wood. Everything. I there, know, there's, dude. There's structures everywhere built with wood, right? Why not do a little bit better? That's. I mean, that, that was well, my whole so, mindset. Yeah, you know, yeah. why not do a little bit better? Not like just fucking rape and fucking pillage. Be smart about the harvesting. Right. Yosemite fucking burns down. Oh yeah, I'm gonna go in and buy four you million. You go clean that I'm shit I'm gonna go up. buy four million feet of fucking wood. Right. It's not about the money for me. Of it's more, not. honestly, bro. It's fucking about continuing on with everybody. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, it's, I love uh, that you had a psychotropic experience though that guided you in the uh, direction. Oh yes. That's yeah, fucking, yeah, yeah. and I'm I'm pitching that hardcore. Yes. Because that is the future of our sanity. Yes. Absolutely. It is. We must indulge in what was given to us so we can so see what the fuck is up. Yep. I I think that like shit is literally ready to close down on us. What's going on in North well, Korea? I know, right but now. we always have North a Korea, chance, bro. Oh my god. Yeah, no. but you know what? They don't all want to fucking die. So I think there's yeah. a lot of you know who's got a bigger dick at this point, and I and it's all president. ego and, I hate and foolishness. Our right now. Well, he's not even. It's well, he's. It our, wasn't a better choice otherwise. I'm not going to say that I'm I'm all about Hillary either. He and needed I, to happen. We needed a new teacher to show us yes, what fucking dicks yeah, we are. Yes. Yeah. That's all, yeah, and so that. yeah. the Buddhist teacher comes in all forms, and that yeah. brother is showing us how much we are right. fucking up. Yep. And now we can and fix it's it. Fucked up. What's, it, what's the name of your company, so people know? Unity Forest Products. Unity Forest. Uni- Pro- Unity. Like think about Unity, it. like all Unity of us. Unity and community. Together. Right. Everybody together. Right. Fucking. And you're in Central California. We're like north of Sacramento. What's your yeah. name? Ryan. Ryan. It's I'll an give honor. you my card. Absolutely. You, you just made the show. I'm talking with Tipo here, and I've known him probably about six, eight six, years. Six, eight years. Tipo, what's your last name? Varnado. Varnado. And Tipo is the poet lord here in Ashland, Oregon. I cringe when I hear that. But it's true, so you can fucking cringe if you want. But the fact of the matter is, your name is synonymous with one that you've orchestrated years where the poetry slams. And created environments where people can come express themselves. Well, thank you for recognizing that. Isn't that the fundamental basis of what you're doing? Well, I'll tell you, I I kind of feel like that. I feel like uh, when I came to Ashland uh, 10 years ago, poets weren't welcome at open mics. Mm -hmm. I think the poets that tried it, it didn't work, and they lost the crowd. One thing you don't want to do at an open mic is get up and have people walk Walk out, out, and so the hosts would be... Like, uh, I don't you know, I don't think so. And uh, little Tom, Tom Little, at uh, the Wild Goose, little Tom's Sunday night open mic, which has been going for darn near 20 years, I think, and it's now hosted by Dave Hampton. I walked in one day 10 years ago and told Tom I'd like to get on the list, and he goes, okay, what do you play? And I said, well, I do poetry. And he was like, oh, man, I don't know. I said, well, just give me a shot. And... Uh, the crowd liked it, and after that, I was welcome there, and I started doing it around town. And you know, people advertise their open mics, and it's like three songs or 15 minutes. And now they say three songs or three poems, 
or 15 minutes. Right. I feel good about that. Poets are welcome now. Right. To do open mics, to express themselves, to be asked to uh, do events. I've been doing all the three-day music fests, summer fests, for a few years now. What are some of these events? Hemp Fest, which didn't happen this year. Because people were too high, couldn't put it together. (laughs) Uh, 420 Family Reunion, Mm -hmm. Apple Jam. New one this year that I went to and spoke at was uh, Pear Jelly, which I think is a takeoff on Apple Jam. Oh, gosh, I even did uh, uh, Raggy in the Trees a couple of years. Cool. And they, they used me because there's time between bands when... There's slack time, and they have to have some form of entertainment. They don't want dead air. They don't want dead air, and they don't want the crowd dispersing. Right. So they throw me up there to speak to the kids, and a lot of times I could hold them. Right. So that's been good for me. Yeah. Good for the festivals, I think. It's pretty compelling content that people don't often get to hear things about in relationship to your experience. I really have no clue about that. Well, I do, because I'm not you, and I've heard what you say in quite a few venues with a variety of different age groups and crowds and people are not used to hearing the truth as it were your truth in your way about some pretty significant shit that you've gone through especially your military experience i suppose so i think the average person may be into a little bit of poetry like certain poets listen to one or two poems and i like that but basically are poetry people and mine's enough different that uh, some other people seem to like it. I've been told many times, I don't like poetry, but I like your stuff. It's kind of gratifying, and I'm just uh, happy that I have that in my life now because for so many years, I didn't have much going. When did that start? Well, I started writing the poetry about two years back from Vietnam. What was the thing? That started it? Mm. Boredom, sitting in my father's photo lab, drying prints. How old were you? 22. Uh Came back from Nam at 20. So about 22, but I didn't start writing about Vietnam. It wasn't that. It was basically love poems, Uh you know, silly little love poems. (laughs) It wasn't until about 2003 that I started writing anything about Vietnam. I did a stint at the VA in White City Mm -hmm. right after we went into Iraq. Like everybody else, I was sitting watching the war on TV, and we just started the ground war, and there was a reporter embedded with the 173rd Airborne. That's Uh, you? Yes. Okay. That's who I was with in Vietnam. Yeah. And uh, they were going out of a C-130 or a C-141, I don't recall which, and as the guys went out the door... I just lost it. I totally lost it. And, I mean, I lost my mind. I'm like, that's, that's my guys there, and some of those kids ain't coming back. Mm. And it hadn't been since Vietnam that we had done anything large-scale like that, and I always had lamented my time in Vietnam knowing or feeling that I'd done the wrong thing. And I consoled myself by saying... If one good thing came from Vietnam, we learned, don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And then here, Mr. Bush, draft dodger that he was, 
sent the boys and girls into Iraq, and I, I just lost it. I knew it wasn't going to be two weeks and mission accomplished. I knew it was another Vietnam quagmire, mm -hmm. and it turned out to be just that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I did a stint, getting my head together at the VA. And part of that process was getting things off my chest. And a lot of Vietnam poems came from that. In that specific block of time. Yes, and it was very healing, I must say. Yeah, it sounds cathartic that, you know, you got to get it out. I always say you, you get it out onto a piece of paper, and then it's on the paper. And it's out It doesn't you. have to be in you. Oh. And you can put it in a drawer and shut the drawer, and that's where it's at. Yeah. And that sort of works. It's actually excellent advice for people as just a human exercise to go through the motions because we don't purge. We don't, we just keep piling shit on top of shit. We're not trained to cycle through our emotions, to deal with them and then let them go. So we are stuffing years, thousands of years of pain and suffering down inside of us. We never do the shit with it we need to do. And so you... Well said. Well, but you, through desperation, found this vehicle that allowed you to go through an exercise so you can give yourself a fucking break and recover from what you were going through, just specifically for that, but it worked out, I'm sure, more longer term that this became your art, and art out of pain is pretty fucking brilliant because it might be the truest art that there is. Not saying that if we were not all suffering like we are needlessly, that we wouldn't produce art, but there'd be a different kind of motivation behind it, perhaps. And maybe it's the opposite, the polar spectrum of it's immense love that art is coming out of instead of shit. Well, I think love, pain, any kind of adversity helps to breed art. Yeah. Can I tell you a poem? Please. It's called Emotion. And it goes like this. I met with stress, and I heard him say, It's my job to beat you down each day, Keep you confused and your nerves to fray, When I get you down, down you'll stay. Well, I kicked stress right in the nuts, said, bring it, boy, if you got the guts. I dissed his name, and in addition, I laughed a while and just went fishing. Well, I met with grief, and he said to me, your loss is my gain. Your sadness is my claim to fame. I need you to play my game. Well, I looked grief right in the face, said, you haven't a clue, not even a trace. You are the tool. I use to move on. I am the king friend. You are my pawn. Indecision at a crossroad said, You must carry twice the load. Your progress I'll block. Your confidence erode. Your loyalties I'll split. And one will be sold. Indecision? You can't touch me. You give me two choices, maybe three. Well, I dealt with stress and I dealt with grief you too will fall like an autumn leaf, and I will carry on. Fear, unsought, has sometimes found me, ground and pounded, trounced me soundly, damn near drowned a few around me, panic all but gagged and bound me. Well, afraid to die is no disgrace when you've looked death square in the face. The greatest gift your life could give is you so that some others live. Dependence was at the opium den. I unhesitatingly walked in. He said, 
come on, we'll have some fun. I said, you had me at opium. Well, fun turned out to be obsession, leading me in hell's direction, and knowing I must turn the tide, I ditched that horse for a smoother ride. Well, I heard hate, and what he said was, come on, boys, let's make some dead. All it takes is me and lead. Bet I can hit one in the head. Well, I put hate where he could not see you through my eyes, though he might see me. And if he does, then so it be, for love has long since set me free. Yeah, I bumped into love in an open field, and both of us refused to yield. She said, I'll get you at some point. Hell, I just rolled another joint. But love has crept into my soul, shown me how I used to roll, and all the life the others stole. Love alone has filled that hole. Now here with Mark, I sit reflecting on all the words I've been dissecting, emotions I've been inspecting, embracing some and some rejecting, but I will not fear them anymore. I need not settle every score, and, and I'll not let them set me to reeling, for after all, they are only feelings, and me, I will carry on, alone or maybe with someone. We were talking about emotions, so I just thought I'd throw well, it It was there. a nice segue and a beautiful poem. Like Robbie DaCosta, who has a seemingly infinite catalog. He's amazing. Yeah. You also keep throwing down. I don't know if you've counted how many pieces you've written. 130, 150, okay. 180 maybe. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, you think like you and Gene Burnett, all these prolific producers of material, if you will. We got these people here, man. It's so funny that this town has a high concentration. I think Ashland attracts that sort of person. Yeah. I came down here to use the facilities at the VA in White City, but when I got to Ashland and checked it out, I knew this is where I wanted to be, hmm. at least for a while. Right. Yeah. How long's a while been now? A dozen years. Yeah. So you were born in Portland? Born in Portland. What year was that? 1950. And are your parents still around? Uh, my father's living. Where's uh, he live? He lives in Portland. Okay. 90 years old. Wow. Teaches split bamboo fly rod building. He's still doing that? Still doing that. He just sold his equipment, and he's training the person whom he sold it to. So he's mentoring somebody into it. Mentoring a lady and her son doing it, and... He drives where he goes. I often call him up in the evening, and he's not home, and he calls me back, and, oh, I've been out to dinner with so-and-so. And he's just throwing down. Yeah, he's, he's doing well. So he probably came from some good genes, too, as a, as a help. Uh, apparently. I hope uh, I got more of his. So you're rolling in the 50s. What yeah. was Portland like? Because I have no, actually, reference for... It seems like Portland just popped up about five years ago. Yeah. But it clearly was, it's been around a long time. It, it was small town all through my youth. But uh, it wasn't connected up with Gresham and Tigard and Sherwood and Tualatin and Vancouver and all the outlying cities mm -hmm. that it now has engulfed. Right. Which has made it much, much larger than sure. the metro area. You know, like kids that grew up in the 50s, we'd say on a Saturday morning... 
see you for dinner and hop on our bikes and head out across town with not a worry in the world. Things that kids don't do so much these days. I guess are just unable to. I think they're able, they're just not inspired well, to. The, well, that, I, I guess, yeah, well, with uh, TV, TV and the video games and stuff, but there's fear out there, stranger danger. Is there? Yeah. Really? I, well, I, listen, I, we live in this little yeah, right. we live in, bubble where only people occasionally get slain instead of daily occurrences of violence. That's, that's true. You know, I do see a lot of people riding bikes around here. And it is kind of lovely little vacation town versus like a real town where, you know, this ain't Flint fucking Michigan, so. Let me ask you a question. How do you like living right downtown? I love it. You know, I just I, moved from, what, three blocks away, right. semi-downtown? Yeah. But just in the downflow from uh, Shakespeare... And I didn't think I could do better. But I think I've done better. I mean, I already lived it like I thought the best fucking place in this whole town. And now I think I now live in the best place in this whole town. I'm from the city. So hearing fucking idiots screaming and yelling at night, it's now it just kind of washes over me. Helps you sleep. Yeah, I think it's kind of like this lullaby of insanity. So, you know, the, the occasional gunshots in the park are a little odd to take. And I have had to call the cops at like five in the morning when there's a guy playing trombone across the street. But other than that, it's kind of this interesting because I went from L.A. to San Francisco to here. Oh, wow. And in San Francisco, I lived on uh, Leavenworth and Post for a little while, just above the urine of the uh, of the tenderloin. And it was a little noisy out there, but no, I, I kind of like it. I mean, I sleep like a rock anyway. I don't know. Do you? Oh, yeah, dude. I envy you. I get on a plane... Before that plane has fucking rolled off, I'm already out. I'm gone. And I know that I'm very lucky that... I mean, I used to photograph weddings. I remember having someone at the wedding take a picture of me passed out in a fucking chair in the living room of the bridegroom's house. Oh, gee, that doesn't go over well, does it? I was finished! <laughs> I used to shoot weddings myself. I grew up with a father... He was a photographer, he, right? He was a photographer, and he ended up owning three portrait studios in Portland... The old 50s-type portrait studios, yeah. big box cameras with a cloth hood. How did he end up in photography? Well, Dad was born in Louisiana. Okay. And uh, during World War II, he joined the Navy, and at the time, they were building ships and manning them just as quickly as possible, so the new recruits were going to the station where the ships were being built in order to catch the ship and take it right on out. Portland... Uh, at the time, was a big ship shipbuilding. Is that why it's called Portland? It was named after Portland, Maine. Oh, it was. Yeah, the uh, the myth, the legend, is that it was founded by a guy from Portland, Maine, and a guy from Boston, and they each wanted to name it after their hometown. So they flipped a coin, and Boston won, and the guy from Portland shot the guy from Boston and named it Portland. Ah! <laughs> now, how true that is, I don't know, but it is named after Portland, Maine. Okay. But it was a big port. It still is. Right. But bigger during World War II. Right. So Dad came out to Portland to catch a ship. Mm -hmm. And Mom and a lot of the other girls were on the docks checking out the sailors. Right. And uh, they met, corresponded all the time that he was away. And he came back and married her in 46. And her father was a photographer and so dad had a short boxing career and then started working for her father mm. and uh, ended up 
working for another photographer in Portland. So he ended up owning three studios in Portland, and, and yeah, I shot a lot of weddings. I mean, when I was no higher than his knee, I was standing in the dark room with him, unable to see right. him developing negatives. We had the first color print printer in Portland, and uh, I got in on the learning how to use that thing. It was amazing, but yeah, we, it was all by hand what we did, and big enlargers. People don't get it because we got Photoshop and like that now, but back in the day, you could take a bad negative, and if you knew what to do with your, well, it was in the enlarger, shining the image on the easel, right? and you put the light-sensitive paper on the easel, shine the negative on it, just with your hands, with we called it dodging. Dodging it, and burning, right? Yeah, dodging and burning in, and uh, yeah. there was so much you could do. It was, and before color portrait film and uh, paper were available, we had oil colorists. We'd take black and white portraits of people and had oil artists. Painted over the top. Painted over the top. Yeah, that's pretty wild stuff. Yeah. So you were working with your dad. Did you work with him in the studios? I did. When I was in high school, once I, once it was clear I had enough credits to graduate, I'd take half a day off and uh, take a bus down to the studio and work with him till he got off at six, seven o'clock in the autumn when we were shooting a lot of high school events and right. high school students. We were often there till eleven at night. Right, but you liked it, yeah. I did initially. And how long did you do that with your dad? Oh. 20 years, I guess. Okay. I mean, from... Did he shoot weddings, too? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's the one who taught me to shoot weddings. And Did he like it? I think he liked it because he grew up in the Depression, born in 26. So he pretty much grew up in the Depression and went to war. And when he got back from war, here was a job. You know, and it was just great to be working. And uh, he was treated well by his boss mm-hmm. once he got away from his father-in-law's business and got to working with other studios and he advanced quickly and I don't think my dad thought much about whether he liked it or not he had five kids and and a wife to support and uh, the job was doing that and uh, where did he learn to become a photographer from his father-in-law okay okay uh, read a lot of books I mean he got every photography book we they were all around the house. I used to love going through them as a child and looking at the nudes. That was your dad's version of National Geographic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then how long did you end up doing it? Well, I did it till I was about thirty, I guess, or around there. And what what prompted and you to stop? The fact that things were changing so quickly with the technology, yeah. and uh, I was having trouble working in the family business. My older brother came along, wanted a job, and uh, he needed to make a certain amount of money. Right. My father gave it to him, and he worked eight hours a day in the studio, and I worked four hours in the studio and 12 hours in the lab. Right. And made way less money than my older brother, and it just always bugged the shit out of me. Right. I grew up with a family of kids whose uh, father was a drywaller. Yeah. Uh, put ceilings and walls in homes. And, yeah. And uh, in high school, me and my buddy Curtis Allen Buster Burgess would hop in the old two-ton scrap truck and go take the scrap sheetrock out of houses that had been sheetrocked. And there's always, it's like Love in carpentry, there's 
ends and pieces yeah, left yeah. over. And uh, we called it scrapping out a house. And right. We, for every uh, house or apartment we scrapped out, we got 10 bucks. Oh, okay. And each of us could make 50 bucks a day. Which is a ton of money back then, yeah. A ton of money for yeah. a high school kid. Totally, yeah. So I got exposed to that and uh, did some of that interspersed with my photography. And uh, when I quit the studios and quit my father, which I felt terrible about because he really wanted me to take over the studios. Was it because your uh, brother that you didn't hang out? That was one reason. Yeah. Just And also, it really did not pay well. It just didn't. Didn't pay well because it couldn't, or it didn't pay well because your dad didn't? I think because dad didn't. Okay. Um, he was really stuck in that 40s and 50s. The depression pay. mentality. Yes, yeah. right. And uh, we have a great relationship now, but I just had to go. So I started doing drywall, and suddenly, you know, it's 1975, 6, 7, and I'm making 12 bucks an hour doing drywall, which was great money back then. Yeah. And, you know, there's an art to hanging it well. Right. You want to have the fewest amount of seams. Right to be finished by the taper right. as possible. So there's an art to doing that and an art to having small gaps instead of big gaps. Right. But the real art comes in the finishing, of taking that and making it look like one piece, yeah. one wall. Yeah. And sheetrock conforms to the framing. So if the framing's bad, then the sheetrock goes on and there's... Right. Garbage in, it, garbage out. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, a, a taper, a finisher, can uh, mitigate that to a degree. Right. And so how long did you do that? Well, I did that from 30 to 60 yeah. uh, pretty steadily. Yeah. And uh, when things went to hell in, in the economy here in the early 80s, I shot up to Alaska where things were great. 28 bucks an hour out of the gate. I mean, I got there with 50 bucks in my pocket. Were you working on the pipeline? No. Started out working in Anchorage which was just going great guns due to the pipeline. Right. And due to the fact that Alaska was getting royalties on every barrel of oil it pumped out of the ground. Right, so they were just getting fat with dough. Getting fat with dough yeah. and uh, buildings going up everywhere and rich people building homes. And it was just a huge construction boom. Right. So I did that for several years. In 1986, you remember OPEC, yeah. I'm sure they're still around, but the oil-producing countries. Mm -hmm. price of oil was $27 a barrel. 1986, OPEC got together and for some reason cut the price of oil. You know, I think they just started producing more, therefore the prices went down. Right. It got down to 9 bucks a barrel, and Alaska said, you know what, we won't even fucking pump it out of the ground for 9 for that. bucks. Right, exactly. It's Stop paying our expenses. No, it's sitting there in the reservoirs in the ground and... When the price goes back up, we'll start pumping. Right. And I saw high-rise buildings that were, you know, going up to 40 floors get capped off at 17. John, we were and, out of money. Yep. Everybody wrap it up, and all of a sudden, you couldn't buy a job in Alaska for a period of time. Yeah. And at that time, I came back here, and things had got rolling again in the trade, and so I very seldom was out of work. Right. And that work kept the guy in shape. You might think that taping and finishing drywall is not that difficult, but it really is. Always got 30 pounds over your head or, or reaching down and pulling mud. It's hard to squeeze mud out behind a knife. 
uh, a, a wide broad knife and I still do a little remodel around town here every now oh, and that's then. cool somebody asked me hey can you fix this and I think I probably can when you came here 12 years ago what were you doing poetry okay <laughs> yeah not much fixing to retire at that point and uh, the VA said that I was damaged what does that I mean? mean it means it started paying me to to not work oh I see and so so they were taking care of you and I, how's that relationship been for you you know people bitch about the VA but they absolutely saved my life well that's I mean I'm sure there's for every shit story there's some wonderful stories yeah I we're asking people to do again an impossible job anyway Right. So we're getting the results we deserve based on putting people in a position to have to do that fucking job. You know, I got out of the military in 71, and I didn't want anything to do with the VA. There were these benefits I could have, and I think one time I went and had my teeth cleaned. (laughs) That that was enough. It was too much like the military, and it wasn't until 2003 when I lost my mind that I sought their help. Right. And uh, they were very forthcoming. And uh, I never asked them for a cent. They, they, they voluntarily. They, they just started putting it on me. Thirty mm. percent for Agent Orange damage uh, for diabetes, which since has seemed to have gone away. Oh, good. Which is nice. Wow. Yeah, and you know, ten percent for this and twenty percent for that, and and then all of a sudden, boom, a hundred percent. Uh, service-connected disability for PTSD, which left me with about 160% disabled. Right. Uh, which, of course, I don't feel today, but I'm going to continue to take the money. Yeah, well, you know, there's no price you can put on what you were put through and what they asked you to do. I mean, you had to agree to it, of course, but there's a fine line between knowing what you're agreeing to and not having a fucking clue to what you just agreed to until you get there. Another poem? Yes, please. By the way, I'm saying this with no fucking personal experience based on my perception of of what I think. Uh, It was your line when you said knowing what they asked you to do that sparked this poem in my head, and it's called Old Soldier. I know an old broken soldier. Broken for me and for you. Once held his head high, was willing to die for the things that we asked him to do. He walked with an air of the honors accrued, loving country much more than himself. Now his walk is a limp, his life servitude, his echelon back of the shelf. The bow in his back comes from bearing the load of the cross which he carried for us. The limp in his gait comes from walking the road which would lead him to victory and bust. The victories he won while keeping us free. The bust he now lives is his prize. The human debris he can't help but see every time that he closes his eyes. They just fade away. Old soldiers don't die, said a soldier of fortune and fame. Well, still true today, and he still wonders why. He can't decide if he is to blame. If he is to blame for waging the war, for making a weapon of life, for being a pawn on the world's chessboard, for being the blade of the knife. Now he lives with his past, his future unclear, his destiny just out of reach, as he's fading away, is shedding a tear 
that his actions said more than his speech. Yes, I know an old broken soldier, mind broken and fading in health, once held his head high when it's his time to die. He'll be loving his country much more than himself. Old soldier. My generation grew up with fathers who had actually saved the world from Nazism, and although that could be debated, but uh, we all thought they did anyway. And uh, you know, in the 50s, in my eyes as a child, America was the good guys. We were just always <laughs> the good guys. We did the right thing, and we took care of the bad guys. And and I'm in high school, and I got all the adult men that I look up to telling me we got to stop the commies in Asia. We got this domino theory where they're going to take one country after another, and it was kind of being proven out. They wanted to dominate uh-huh. the world and us, and so. Uh, Let's go fight them in Vietnam, you know. And uh, I felt obligated to do that. Mm. Uh, you were convinced. I was convinced. Yeah. I was brainwashed. And and I remember being really angry with those damn hippies that were protesting the war. Mm. Uh, that's where my head was at. Sure. And it kind of hurts me now to even think that. Uh, Kent State happened yeah. while I was in Vietnam, yeah. before dead in Ohio. And uh, I heard the news. I recently found a letter I had written to my father from Vietnam. And when I sent a letter home to the family, it was always, things are great, you know, I'm doing this and, and that. And then when I sent a letter to my father at the studio, I could tell him what was really going on. Mm-hmm. And I read this letter that I had written, and I said, Something to the effect of, I see they killed four hippies in Ohio. I hope that'll teach them. Isn't that terrible? It's where you were at. Well, of course, it's it's not a good state of mind because you were under the perception that they were threatening the stability of this country and your job and your whatever feelings you had around your obligation that you thought you had. They were the enemy as much as the fucking guys that you were killing over there. And, uh, of course, now I recognize that they were right and I was wrong. And I, it took me a while to learn to live with that, and, uh, but I totally embrace that now. Do you think that was some of the motivation, too, aside from your break, for you to express yourself so you, know, you, can't, you would be more than just this one-dimensional return victim from fucking the Holocaust. Yes, I think the realization and coming to terms with the fact that I did the wrong thing and and was so wholeheartedly into it while I was doing it, um, and I needed to heal from that. Yeah. And, and I think I pretty much have, you know. I'm, I'm fairly whole. You seem to be. I mean, I can't imagine... You know, you just made a comment about how easy it is for me to sleep at night. Well, I haven't had much trauma in my life. It's been pretty easy going. I mean, I've had my growing up things, but, you know, nothing like what you have witnessed and been a participant in. I can't even imagine trying to sleep at night after even if you didn't do anything, but just to be there in that environment of all that fucking aggression. Yeah, I, uh, I used to have what I can call Vietnam dreams 
I would have one recurring dream. Oh, and I don't even know if I can tell you about it without getting all emotional, but the deal would be I'm on a, a landing zone, a fire base somewhere, and somehow just intuitively, it's nighttime, intuitively I know that my guys, uh, some of my people, are off in the distance over here a couple clicks away being ambushed. And in the dream, I don't know if it came over the radio or what, but I just, I know that. So I jump up and I run to the nearest chopper, which I don't know how to fly, but in my dream I did. And uh, I'd get it, get the rotors going and I'd lift off the ground and I'd be using a stick uh, for direction, even though the Huey I was in didn't have a stick, it had a wheel. But this is my dream. And I'd lift off the ground and I'd just intuitively know where they were. And so I'd pull the stick over in that direction and the chopper would go the other way. And I'd move the stick all around. No matter what I did, I couldn't get it to go to get my guys. And I knew that I was failing them. And then I'd wake up just in such turmoil. And and uh, I'd be sweating and crying and and have to run out of the house, sometimes half naked because the walls were just closing in on me. And I live up on the hill, so I'd want to get down to the plaza and I'd go hop in my car and then I couldn't even be in the car. Uh, everything was just closing in and collapsing on me and I'd walk for hours at night trying to work that off because I'd be so full of adrenaline. And I'd finally get it worked off and that dream I probably had a dozen times and it came to a point where I knew what was going to happen and I couldn't stop it in the dream. But it was, there was a time in Vietnam when I was on a hilltop with about 40 other guys and I had to leave the hilltop to go back and get some supplies that we needed. And it was like, I caught the last chopper. You'd just call a chopper. Anybody in the vicinity that was going where you were headed would stop by and pick you up and take you there and I, it was just dusk and I caught the last chopper out and uh, it was like I was going to be back in the morning with the with the parts that we needed to repair this machine so we could complete building the, the fire base and uh, that night it was just like the monsoons hit just boom all of a sudden it's raining so hard that for three days nothing flew here I was sitting back in the rear and didn't even have contact with my guys out in the field and as it boiled down by the time I got back there there was nobody unscathed. You know, the VC took the opportunity to hit the hill mm -hmm. well uh, it was all messed up up there and the, the bunkers weren't complete and uh, everybody was either killed or wounded. and. I felt so guilty for years about that. I remember running into one of the guys when I was leaving country for the second time. Ran into him at uh, Cameron Bay Airport there. And I said, brother, I'm so sorry I wasn't on the hill. And almost broke down. Just survivor's guilt. like. I needed to be there to help save my guys or to die with them, 
you know. But I survived, and it was almost worse than being a casualty all these years. And that's what that dream was about. And uh, fortunately, I've gotten over those dreams, but uh, I still have some pretty violent dreams. I mean, we all do, I imagine, but... I cannot yeah. imagine. Not me. No, I cannot. Well, I'm happy for that. Seriously. Me too. I mean, I'm sorry for you that you have to yeah, endure. Yeah. Well, first of all, I left Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where I was with the 82nd Airborne. How old were you then? Uh, 18. So straight out of high school, you said, I'm, I'm helping out. Well, I enlisted at 17. What did your and, parents think about that? Uh, they, if I wanted to go, they'd sign for me at 17. Yeah. So my point being, here in the States, you're with a group of guys, and you're with them for months, and, and then all of a sudden you get orders for Vietnam, and it's not like a whole unit's going over, and you're going to be fighting with the guys that you've spent the last months or a year with. Right. You're going over. I get sent to a replacement company at Fort Lewis, Washington, where I meet a whole new group of guys, mm -hmm. and we all start interacting and getting to know each other. And two weeks later, we're all put on an airplane, and we go to Vietnam, where we all go to a different unit. And then you're with a bunch of guys in Vietnam who one guy's got three days left, one guy's got two months left. They're coming and going. Is this They're, isolation thing by design? No, I think it was by idiocy. Okay. Right, by not knowing. And uh, then I came home and it was time for me to leave the military. I didn't have to do any stateside time. Mm, My time was up. Yeah. I came home, and I, I don't know what day of the week it was, but let's say it was a Wednesday. I got home. Midday Thursday, I was on a bus, a civilian, taking a bus back to Portland. No debriefing whatsoever. Just you're no, home like you were on vacation and fucking you're getting just, off a plane and yep, start your yep, life. That's it. That's what it was. No transitional, and no... I, and I'm not sniveling about that. No, I, but still. Just, that was a terrible way to do things. Sure. And... Uh, you know, now they learned from that, and now they send units over, and units come back. And when you get back, you've got all the time in the world to debrief and mm -hmm. and uh, get your head back together before they put you in society. And uh, all my adult life, there's been this stigma about Vietnam veterans. You know, they're they're murderers or psychopaths. Yeah. Or, and there's a reason for that. Yeah. And we just talked about that reason. Yeah. Uh, that's portrayed in film, too. Absolutely. You know, Full Metal Jacket, and, you know, they showed some pretty fucking nutty people out there, but, you know... Deer, deer Hunter. Yeah, well, but they were they were programmed to, to be these people. That, that was probably not those people before the program. I mean, the program's pretty persuasive and effective to create the feelings that, yes, I must do this. It's my duty. When your life's in jeopardy... Are you going to just let somebody take it? I mean, when you're over there and you're faced with uh, life or death, you're going to learn to hate somebody and try to prevent them from killing you, and you may have to kill them in order to prevent them from killing you. Yeah. You, you have to hate somebody to wage war on them. Yeah. And, and they uh, definitely put that in your mind. And they gave the weakest of reasons, of course, too, these flimsy talking about communism or whatever word that they make up 
to create an enemy to give you enough firepower to want to eliminate them as they are this perceived threat, which it's all perceived, of course. What a horrible thing now is. You know, you look at the Vietnamese people now, they're such a lovely people. Of course they are. But it just shows that we are capable of anything on any end of the spectrum. Yes, and it was that Cold War paranoia. And I do want to say, I may have been influenced in my life by my experience in Vietnam, but it certainly doesn't define me. And it's not only how you may feel about yourself, but how others view you. Uh, Yeah, and I'm happy that my poetry has allowed me to be defined as something other than Vietnam vet. Right. No, actually, it's really awesome. And and that's how I know you, is through your contribution. A lot of my writing uh, came from traumas and like that, but a, a lot of my sharing came from ego. From the ego? Yeah, from, I, uh, I want the attention. Look at me, look at me. Um, I was a middle child, you gotta understand. No, I had a brother who was a middle child no longer with us, so I, I do understand. Starving yeah, for attention. And, uh, you know, people say, oh, you're, like you said, poet, lord, rational, uh, made all these contributions, and still, most of it's been about me. Yeah, but that's okay because it is you. I mean, you're having this experience. You can't, like, take you out of the picture. So it is these things that you write don't exist without you. So it has to be you. You are the fundamental primary thing. Exactly. It had to be you. (laughs) Who else is it going to be? So you recently found out that you have lung cancer. Yeah. But based on what you told me... It sounds like you'll be able to get out of those woods, too, maybe. <clears throat> Excuse me. If, if you have to have lung cancer, what I got going on is about the best-case scenario. Okay. Uh, two tumors in my right upper lobe. And uh, had metastasized, not in the lymph nodes. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, they're going to go in sometime next week and take out the upper right lobe and sew me up and he tells me there's a real good chance that it's a done deal. Just huh. keep an eye on yourself for six months and if there's no reoccurrence and you're cured. You're good to go. It's like yeah. me getting that fucking nut taken off, man. That's it. Done. No, I didn't have to chemo, nothing. Just yeah, I mean, they wanted me to and I said, yeah, no, fuck that. So I think I'm fine now. I, I am. So, I did not know that. Yeah, that's like uh, 2010. Yep. I found it myself. Really? I self-diagnosed. I go, oh, hey, that does not playing feel with, correct. Playing with yourself. and Pretty much. And if it wasn't for playing with myself, I wouldn't have fucking found it. But I knew immediately that I something was wrong. Was it painful? I mean... No, it was just totally was deformed. The, the testicle was like a fucking prune, pitted prune in there. It's fucked up. It felt wrong. You know, the other one, nice and supple and normal, and I, I had the contrast to know that I have a problem, yes, yes. and I immediately diagnosed it. Then, here's the, where the comedy starts. I had a stomachache that night, and I took some Pepto-Bismol tablets. The next morning, I wake up. I open my mouth. My whole inside of my mouth is black. Fucking black, like, a, like uh, my tongue is black. Everything's black. I'm looking at myself in the mirror, and I'm laughing. I go... 
Okay, so last night, I found my own cancer. Now, I got the fucking black plague on top of that. So I'm laughing because it's ridiculous. And then, of course, I get online and I said, hey, why is my mouth black? And it said, yeah, you ate some Pepto-Bismol. So that kind of lightened the load on the cancer, knowing that the plague was now gone. I've cured the plague. Now I just have to deal uh, with the cancer. There is some humor there. I like to say uh, sleep apnea saved my life. Saved your life. Doc wanted a chest x-ray to see about the apnea. Showed the oh, show, I see the what cancer. you're saying. Oh. Yeah. yeah, I hear more stories about people going in for things and other things being found. That's and that's so why being thorough is really important. Yeah, and that's why so many of us don't want to go to the doctor. Afraid of what we're going to find well, out. Well, and it's true. How about this one? It's called Destiny. One man's experience before, during, and after Vietnam. I hope I can remember it. I haven't done this in probably a year. He is just a drifting man, alone, but unafraid. Been rubbing life the wrong way on a road the devil laid. Never stops to look around, seldom hesitates. Ears that hear a single sound, his destiny awaits. He was once an upright boy. Ambition seemed his middle name. He could turn a tool into a toy, hard work into a game. He'd be awake to greet the sun, Stay busy all the time. While friends were out to have some fun, he was out to make a dime. Folks always knew he'd get ahead a step before his peers. He'd make gold from bricks of lead within a couple of years. But when he graduated school, his patriotic chore to keep us free from commie rule, he had to go to war. He left his home, his head held high, a kiss from his girlfriend. He'd fight, and if he had to, die to see the good guys win. Yes, he could kill him by the score in the name of liberty, and he would maim a thousand more to keep his country free. From homeroom class to battle zone took just half a year. He thinks about his life back home and sheds a single tear. He wonders how it feels to kill and what it's like to die. He wonders if they'll take the hill. He knows that they will try. Morning brings the sound of guns and that smell, the burning flesh, and the warm blood like a river runs down the hill of death. The war is hell, the wise man said, and he was learning fast. Shot a man, killed him dead, the first time, and the last. The cold, dead stare in his victim's eyes was mute contrast to the cheers of the young man's comrades who used their knives to on their belts hang the dead man's ears. It was then he realized he was the enemy. Take their land, take their lives, and call it liberty. These people pose no threat, he sees. What was he really here for? They want to work their rice paddies. No less and little more. He wants to leave the bloodshed, go back home and live in peace. He wants a pillow on his bed, tell stories to his niece. But there is much to do yet, many commies still survive, so burn their homes with napalm until none are left alive. Well, America survived this one, but how did he survive? By turning on and 
tuning out. He's more dead than he's alive. And no hero's welcome he'll receive when he gets back to the world. Baby killer, they believe. No flags will be unfurled. He brings a habit home with him. It numbs him to the scorn of the people who are living in the town where he was born. Now he sees no future, feels a needle in his arm. He now wakes up at sunset. Pain is his alarm. It was he who gave his life away and he could get it back. But all that he will gain today is another needle track because he is just a drifting man, alone but unafraid. Been rubbing life the wrong way on a road the devil laid. Never stops to look around. Seldom hesitates. Ears that hear a single sound. His destiny awaits. I always like to say there's several people in this body. Several personalities. And two of the personalities were sharing a bottle of whiskey across the table one evening and having a conversation, and the conversation went kind of like this. I think I was meant to die over there, he said, as he lifted his glass, where the sun was like fire, the mud was like mire, in the paddies and elephant grass. I went when they asked me, did what I was told, and I felt that my life had a meaning. Now my life seems so nasty, I'm, I'm bitter and old, and street life is so damn demeaning, so I live in a bottle, don't do what I oughta, and it seems such a steep hill from here. Seems I can't make the grade, as the memories all fade of a life which I once held so dear. So leave me alone while I bitch and I moan and I wish I had died over there. It would beat dying here with a gut full of beer and a feeling that no one would care. When it was my turn to talk, well, I was too drunk to walk, and my words came out rather slurred. But I set down my cup, and I said, Listen up. It's my turn to have the last word. So you think you should have died over there. What good would that do anyone? There are children who love you. A blue sky above you. There are boys who would say that they're your son. Why do you sit there and dwell on the past? All it does is to make you feel sad. There are kids you inspire. You kindle a fire in young girls who would say you're their dad. Yes, you really are selfish to live all alone, keeping love and compassion at bay. I don't understand why you snivel and moan when you really have so much to say. There are kids who would listen to all you could say. To the children, you're not being fair. So cast off your false pride. Realize that you lied when you said you should have died over there. You have put into words things no kids will hear, because your ego won't open that door. So you write it and hide it. If only you tried it, your life could be worth living for. And you can still be a hero without giving your life. Forget all that happened back then. Teach the right way to go, and you will be a hero when you love and support the children. He's the kind of guy you see alone, when he comes and when he goes. It's not that he is lonely, it's just that he's alone. He never stays for very long and deep inside you know. He is just a solo writer, 
searching for new roads. He leans into the corners. He's flat out on straightaways. His nights all run together, and he can't recall his days. His clothes have long been tattered, and his hair is growing thin. He's endured a thousand windstorms. He's a lover of the wind. He's a lover of his freedom, a victim of its hold, the bearer of experience, stories left untold, perhaps a bit unstable. He's an ever-shifting load, because he is just a solo rider, searching for new roads. And he says, I was riding on top of two silver wheels. I could feel something riding there at my heels. I got no time to plot a course. I've seen death ride an iron horse. Can't look back. Got a straight ahead. Harley boy gonna share my bed. Can't get stuck, man. Got a truck. Ride beside me, lady luck. Got to ride on out here hard and fast, cause any sunrise could be the last, and I got no time to feel remorse. I can't let death catch my iron horse. So I'm riding down the road now, wild and free. There's still something trying to get a hold on me. I'm gonna ride on till I find the source. I gotta keep riding that iron horse. Death rides an iron horse and he's out there on the street. He's burning up the pavement and I can feel his heat. I gotta keep the throttle back in order to be free cause death rides an iron horse and he's catching up to me. That was Death Rides an Iron Horse. I am not a poet. I am not a seer. I don't want to be a guru or some constant disagreer. I am not a prophet and I've never been a prayer. I don't know who I am to you. To me, I'm just a sayer. I say this and I say that and I quote so and so. Words of wisdom and words of crap. The words to blow the status quo. Just saying what I feel is true. I'm not much of a player, but I'm doing what I like to do. You see, I'm just a sayer. Listen, and you'll find you learn. Learn and you will grow. In the end, you'll find you earn respect for sharing what you know. I'm not a merchant of the light, come to tell you what is real. I'm not some shining armored knight here to make our lives ideal. And I am not a preacher, gonna read from heaven's scroll, nor am I a creature come to drag you in a hole. You know I'm not a martyr, for to get you all inspired. I am an a la carter, with no wish to be desired. For when I peel the faces back, layer after layer, these naked eyes reveal the fact. I simply am a sayer. Too much input, voices way loud, too many people, damn the crushing crowd, ideas spilling out our ears, emotions close behind, floating words no one will hear, cause it's chaos by design, chaos by design. It's time to come together now, get our neurons flowing, the key is in a familyhood, we gotta get that going, cause the unity of familyhood 
is power in itself. When focused on the common good, poverty becomes great wealth. My family are my kinsmen. We share a common bond. They choose me, I choose them. Although our genes don't correspond because there's more to be in family than who your mama was. It's all about civility, unity, and all that does. And living in a familyhood, each chosen family member, as the tree bark is to wood, as fire is to ember, watches out for other folks, covers well their back. As this flame, this family grows, a group of wolves become a pack. And when this pack, this family, fights for common goals, you must respect the glory and the awesome might that family arm and arm reflect, because unity of familyhood is power in itself. When focused on the common good, poverty becomes great wealth. So if my family, you would be, I'll welcome you with open hands. But those of you who disagree, that's okay too. I understand. But who says we cannot share a love because we do not share a mother? I've already started thinking of you as my sisters and my brothers. Families sometimes knit and pick at inconsequential silly shit, but some are the fuel and some are the wick that keep the fires of passion lit. The passion for some loving friends, not just my father's offspring brat. Well, that's the message I'd like to send, so I'll just leave this where it's at. Before I end, just let me say, it's chaos out there every day. Well, let's put chaos on the run, because it's chaos till we say it's done. Let's come together in a familyhood. We'll work it for the common good, and everything will work out. It'll come together fine, because familyhood defeats chaos by design. It's called Soul Brothers. I can see it in his eyes. I heard him say it with his eyes as clearly as if he had spoken the words out loud, but that was impossible, given the noise from the rotors and the disorder of the situation. But he was leaning far out and down from the chopper door, secured to the bird only by the hand of his comrade, tightly clenched to the back of his belt in jungle fatigues. He was reaching, reaching, just a little further. I was chest deep in a swamp with six good men, one of us rapidly dying as we tried with our last bit of endurance to hold him over our heads long enough for the man with the talking eyes to wrestle him into the chopper. I wasn't sure we could do this. We were in the only clearing for two clicks in any direction. The chopper skids could not rest on the water's surface, nor go below it. I wondered if this mission turned dust off attempt was destined to fail. And then I looked into the eyes of the man leaning from the bird. As his hand latched onto my friend's fatigues at the belt line, his eyes surveyed the scene. As his eyes scanned across mine, we locked on momentarily, like a laser. Through his eyes, 
I saw his soul. I believe he saw mine. It all happened in a second or so, but I heard his soul say through his eyes to me, Bro, I can only imagine what you guys have been through today. I wish I could do more. Stay and help, you know, bro? But know this, my soul brother. Your friend is in good hands. Bless you, my brothers, and good luck. With that, he lifted my brother into the bird with one arm and all of his heart and soul, and then they were gone. Over the years, I have wondered if he had read my eyes the way I read his. If he did, I hope he heard me say, Thank God for your kind, my brother. I know you look into men's tortured souls daily. Yes, it is hell down here right now. But I have the privilege to know the humor, hear the dreams, share the joys and the disappointments of these true brothers in arms. Never have I felt so alive. It's strange, you know, bro? You feel it too? Bless you, my hero brother, and Godspeed. So at some point or another, we've all fallen in love. Yeah, I do about every eight minutes. <laughs> Someone has found a tender spot. I thought I hid so well. Behind the hardness, life is rot, secured within this bunkered cell, buried deep so as to keep all prying souls at bay. I mound it steep that none may reap this bounty neath the clay. And yet, someone has found it out, this place of tender purpose. And now, a flood from out the drought has washed it to the surface, exposed it to the glaring light of day from out the solitude. Must I return it to the night, this tender place so long subdued? Or might I let it sing at last, the sweetest song of its desire, to chance the tears behind this mask will drown this newly kindled fire. There is no less lightheartedness behind these wrinkled eyes, as there is the hardness dressed to serve the bold disguise. I'm torn, but in my hand, the spade, I use to hide this tender spot. Be I afraid or just dismayed, I'll bury it without a thought, cause it hurts to have a tender side. Be it wise or be it not, I guess I'd better soon decide if I should hide this tender spot, for someone now has found it out, this place of tender purpose, and now a flood from out the drought has washed it to the surface. You know, I've sat here and told you some Vietnam poems that were all kind of, you know, maybe not pleasant to listen to, but so much of the time over there was good time. Tell me about we, that, because we only hear, really, honestly, do you know, I can't even <coughs> say, like, hey, yeah, one time this guy told me about this amazing story that he did this. It's nothing but shit. So it couldn't have been 24-hour-a-day shit. You were with other human exactly, beings. Exactly, exactly. So other things and, happened. And 
that's mainly what I remember is the times with my buddies <coughs> this is called what we were gonna do and a young lady named uh, Mandy Valencia uh, you know Mandy love that girl she's show In number, fact, you, yes, show number two baby yeah right well she took this poem I sat in the park and she recorded me reciting this poem and then she put images some of them my pictures from Vietnam and others uh, stock footage of the war put them together made a bit a video entered it in the Ashland Film Festival in I believe 2014 and won uh, best student short wow yeah it was awesome I did not know that yes and so this is called what we were gonna do and this is this is what we were gonna do we would build a raft we said from logs we cut ourselves and we tracked the Mississippi's bed from the Missouri to the mouth. Yeah, we were gonna build a raft and we would float the Mississippi and we would drink and smoke and laugh as we traveled the old muddy. Brother, when this hell is over and we get back to the world, we said, for a while, we'll just lay in clover. Then we'd follow where the river led. There was me and Harley, Danny and Cherry Ball Cherry Ball was actually David Ball from Eugene, Oregon. One of the few homeboys I had over there. We called him Cherry because as a paratrooper until he'd made that sixth jump, you were considered Cherry. Hence, Cherry Ball, straight out of jump school. But the four of us would often sit together at night in a bunker on guard duty talking about how far away was everything that mattered to us aside from one another, and we seldom, if ever, talked about our feelings for one another. We knew how we felt, and it didn't require vocalization. We would die for each other, like brother to brother. Danny was from Lake George, New York, Harley from everywhere and nowhere, but we would talk. And as we sat and watched the sky blaze red over the South China Sea at dusk, we would talk. We talked about how we would all stay in touch. And once the last of us got back to the real world, we would all meet up in St. Louis. We would boat out to a nearby island in the muddy where we would camp out for several days while we constructed a most sturdy raft. Upon completion, we would stock provisions and launch. We would float the Mississippi to New Orleans, beaching only to gather more provisions. This was the plan, and none of us even questioned if it would happen. Come morning, it was like, be careful today, brother. And we'd all go off to our own hoocher hammock, could catch a few winks before we had to move out. Then one day, Harley got orders for Thailand. I always figured they wanted him to train rangers to kill effectively with hand weapons, but I never heard from him ever again. A few weeks later, I was in the back of a three-quarter ton truck driven by Cherry Ball when, from the rice paddy to the right of us, two AK-47s opened up, fired from the hip, one by a woman, and they sent a noisy stream of tracer rounds out in front of the vehicle and slowly walked them into us. We all ducked as the rounds struck the truck. I was stunned, but unhurt. David Cherry Ball 
who was struck in the shoulder and the head. But this, this hell of a man refused to relinquish his position as driver and he drove himself to the nearest med station at LZ English, 15 clicks away. You know, I never called him Cherry again. Danny left country a few months before me and once I left, although on a few occasions I attempted to find the guys, I, I never heard from any of them ever again. I guess in a way, the real world turned out to be just another battlefield on which we each had to fight alone. But I'm confident that those of us still living remember when we would build a raft, we said, from logs we cut ourselves, and we'd track the Mississippi's bed from the Missouri to the mouth. Yeah, we were going to build a raft, and we would float the Mississippi, and we would drink and smoke and laugh as we traveled the old muddy. Brother, when this hell is over and we get back to the world, we said, for a while, we'll just lay in clover. Then we'd follow where the river led. That's what we were going to do. And you know, I know guys who have fought in Iraq and Afghanistan who still are in touch with many of the guys they fought with because they were like uh, National Guard units who were together for six years right. here and over there and come back here and they're still together. But Well, they didn't know. Maybe they just didn't know yet and they hadn't figured out that it's actually just more intelligent to create these groups, these support groups. And oh, well, that's that's true. They, they did learn that, but I knew Harley for maybe three months. You know, and as well as I remember him and have pictures of him, it wasn't real important once we got home to stay in touch. Mm. You know, we thought it was right. when we were over there, but it wasn't. You just started going about your life again. Right. This is called the family of man, the wise. My brother, the wolf, he speaks with me in the voice of a prophet of pain and he whispers the depredation of years as he surveys his finite domain. His howl be the echo of 10,000 tears, his walk that of noble and chain. But his image in the water of the tide pool mirrors the soul of his survivor remains. My father, the eagle, carries me high neath the wings of a warrior bold. There only I sense the wound in his cry is soothed by his sunset of gold in a place where his mountains meld with his skies in his exile, his final stronghold. He concedes that the anguish seen in his eye is the fear of a future foretold. My cousin, the grizzly, emboldens me by her swagger, her bold lack of fear, excavating her lair with her nose in the air a warning to tread not so near. For her cubs are at play a short distance away, her intention she makes very clear. Venture too close, risk overdose of a vengeance so flaming austere. My sister, the salmon, swims with singular mind, seeking only to spawn and to die through the turbulent torrent 
bubbling, blind. She will slither and wither and fly. She will struggle and grind until she will find that space she did once occupy and at long last entwine with a mate of her kind, giving life to her ovum a fry. My uncle, the walrus, he lives on the ice and he swims in a defiled sea. On occasion he speaks, and his words are concise as he weighs all his burdens on me. My nephew, says he, we have all paid the price. When will you grow up and see? Your Moses, your Gandhi, your Buddha, and Christ have shown you the path to equity. Our mother, the earth, she cares for us all. She respects us as one family. So take my advice, let us tear down the walls and be as she wants us to be. Release us from chain, wipe the tear from our eyes, replenish our land, air, and seas. The burden's on you who would moralize. The burden's on you, man the wise. That was the family of man the wise. Yeah, I like that. I like them all. Well, thank you. Literally, just when we talked about, you know, a lot of your poetry is about pretty much just changing your mind and changing your perception and, 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 and being able to see something a little differently, like the wise family, as it were. Um, but we just don't give a fuck about each other enough yet to really make those kind of changes, I see. Slowly, but... Yeah, and then, you know, we've just recently become this global society and are getting used to trying not to war and actually care about each other. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, we're, this is a great time of learning. Uh, no doubt. Yeah, the teachers are fast and furious of showing us how low we have sunk and that we can self-correct. We can correct this course. No problem. And we, we need to. Well, we have to. Otherwise, we don't get to stay at this party anymore. Good, good way to put it. They're going to fucking, they're going to call the cops in, and they're going to shut this fucking party down, and we're all kicked out. And it can be that easy. We can be kicked out of this fucking party as easily as we were invited. So it is up to us to take care of our parents' house that we're throwing this party in and just be reasonably respectful to each other. Just reasonability kind of keeps the party going. It doesn't, nothing over the top. Take care of your neighbor. Just take care of your brothers and sisters, man. That's all it ever needed to be. You don't need 10 commandments. You don't need constitutions. One simple philosophy kind of takes care of it all. We can all understand that. We don't need any special documentation. Familyhood defeats chaos. No question. By design. Yes. And that is part of natural law that we're not taking advantage of to save us from ourselves. Is there have been things, systems put in place to give us an out from our own stupidity. But we have to be willing to go there as a group and help each other see this and then we can take advantage of this opportunity that clearly we've been given is ridiculous. It can be beautiful. It can be. And and hopefully it will be, because I have kids, and they know how fucking stupid this is, and they're rebelling against the whole school idea and see it's teaching to the test, and it's not nourishing, and it's not giving them 
intelligent information. It's not instructing them what this is and how to use. You know, they're not teaching me how to think, they're teaching me what to think. Until you teach me how to think so I can discern for myself and make decisions and not put that horrible responsibility on somebody else's shoulders, which is a setup for failure, then this whole thing keeps going in a circle of shit. Just teach me how to do it and I can do it. Like Jean Burnett says, what would water do? What would water do? Wow. Let, let me give you one last poem. It's a okay. short one. Okay. Okay. It's called Feed the Rainbow. Speaking of water. I feed the rainbow. Watch it grow. I am rain and sometimes snow. In concert with the bright sunshine, I feed the rainbow all the time. I am the ripple which hides the core. I am chaos. Perfect order. I am flow and elegance. I am rhythm. I am dance. I create diversity on the mountain, in the sea, rearranging everything, dissolving all realities to ultimate finalities. I feed the rainbow, watch it grow, feed it fast, sometimes slow. In concert with the bright sunshine, I feed the rainbow all the time. I make the bed which guides my flow, swiftly running, deathly slow, going where I want to go. I make the bed. I am the flow. I am the compound, H2O. Anything you want to close with, brother? You say anything you want, man. Dude, I'm just happy to have been here with you for the last couple hours. And Has uh, it been a couple hours? I lose track been, of time. Yeah, it's been two hours. That's why I purposely sit. I don't like looking at the clock, but I know other people have lives. And, are, and I'm parked in the 30-minute zone. <laughs> oh, well, you need to get the fuck out of here. Uh, thank you, Tipo. Really, honestly. Uh, I know this was not easy for you to make happen. I'm not that debilitated. No, no, I but mean, I appreciate you are uh, under some difficult uh, circumstances currently and that you uh, made the time for me. Because speaking of ego and or, self... Or did, did I do it for me? Well, we <laughs> maybe so. But either way, we did it together, and we don't spend all that much time together, so I appreciated the opportunity I'm, to do it. I'm glad we did. Yeah, me too, man. Quick Mickey Mantle story. He came to Portland while I was living there, and uh, he was on a radio sports talk show. And Billy Martin had recently passed, player and manager of the Yankees there for years, and Mickey Mantle started telling this Billy Martin story. He goes, Billy Martin and I went deer hunting, and uh, I knew the farmer whose land we were going to hunt on. He said, so I pulled up in front of the house and told Billy, you just hang here in the truck and I'll go let the farmer know we're on his property. And so Mickey Mantle walks up to the door and the farmer comes to the door. Hey, Mickey, how you doing? Good. Uh, you guys go ahead and hunt. Uh, Mickey, I got that old mare over there. She's just in pain now and she's old and uh, she really needs to be put down. And you got your guns, and I just wonder if you'd do that as as easily as possible. And Mickey said, sure. And he walked back to the truck and thought he'd play a joke on Billy Martin. And he reaches in the truck and grabs his gun, and he goes, Bastard won't let us hunt. And he pulls his gun up and shoots that mare. And all of a sudden he hears, boom, boom. And Billy Martin goes, I got a couple of the bastard's cows. <laughs> I heard this live from Mickey Mantle all over the radio. Oh, my God, that's a fucking great yeah, story. I always remember that because it was Holy so, so good. I got ridiculous. a couple of the bastard's cows. Uh, I wish you the best in your recovery. It sounds like 
it's a good prognosis. All right, brother. <laughs> good to see you, man. Good to see you too, man. Right. Thank you very thank, much. Thank you so much. Well, that's the show. It's still Sunday, but it's now 5.02. And I'm still, you know, I'm finishing it, man. Right here, today, for you, right now. Doing it. Finishing it. Getting it done. All that. Everything's fine for now. Okay, sirrah, sirrah, man. Whatever will be, will be. Uh, I want to thank um, Tipo, for, again, for a great show, for belting it out to the back row with his poetry and, uh, and spending some seriously, uh, some, some real quality time together. And now I know a lot more than I did. Just like with everybody, I learn something every time I do this. It's unavoidable. And that's part of what I like is this whole introduction to new information about people that, you know, I thought I knew something about, but you don't know shit about anybody until you really know some shit about them. So, so thanks, Tipo. Super cool. Ryan, thank you very much for allowing me to record us in the car. He was partying like a rock star, and he, he pulled that out pretty well. He and his uh, cohorts uh, graduated from SOU about 17 years ago, and they get together every year. But this year, they decided to get their nostalgia on and come to Ashland. So there was a bunch of them wearing these t-shirts, which I, I don't remember what they said. So that's pretty much it. Uh, love it, I love it, I love it. I loves it all. It's all so brilliant and groovy. And I look forward to seeing my children when they return. I always look forward to doing this. It's the whole Andy Baxter just show up. I'm showing up. I wanna show up to the gym next week. I haven't been showing up to that. But I'm showing up to this, and I'm going to show up to a hike tomorrow morning after breakfast with uh, Rich Reese, up to where he says some girls are, like, naked. I'm down with that. I think, you know, some sandwiches and uh, some juice and some naked girls. Sounds like the perfect day. Monday. Monday, Monday, Monday. And then tomorrow night I'll work. All right. Word to your mother's uncle. To find out more about Tipo and his Rogue Valley Poetry Slam, please visit him on Facebook under T-P-O-E-V-A-R-N-A-D-O. That's Tipo Varnado. Citizen 44.